0: Chapter Thirty of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty. Will you come and tell me, Nurse, when you think that I have been with Miss Stevens long enough? I will, Sir. But I think you can stay over the hour. Miss Stevens is much better today. The door of the room closed quietly. Jeremy Dan drew his chair nearer to the couch where Amy was lying. The chaste, pale surroundings of a nursing home were in a tale with the patient's pinched face, colourless lips, and sunken eyes. Amy's mouth was closed, a sign of weakness with her. In its curve there now resided a suggestion of potential voluptuousness too faint, however, to feed a taste for hasty characterisation. To a casual observer she might still appear almost Madonna-like, for he would disregard the unsettled roving of the eyes, the dilation of the nostrils, the freer sweep of the loops of hair which Amy, or her nurse, cultivated. Or he might think that she looked like Undine, with only half a soul. The room was healthily bare, and presented the uncomfortable, angular appearance of an ordinary apartment set ready for cleaning. The furniture was not permitted to cling to the walls, as in the domain of the healthy, A glass-leaved table, neatly spread with utensils, was placed by, not against, the dado, and looked sharp and unsympathetic in its insulation. The bed, with electrical appliances for summoning and lighting, was without the kind chiaroscuro of curtains. On the one single austere nail on the door, Amy's little white flannel dressing-jacket hung. There were no flowers in the room. Jeremy Dand was the only visitor who came to inquire after her and sit with the patient, and he was not a man who ever thought of such things. Yet the pretty blue peignoir Amy wore, the coverlet of fur she stretched over her thin knees, the embroidered bedroom slippers that adorned her feet, were the result of a comprehensive order to one of the best shops in London despatched by him. He had preferred not to send for her wardrobe to Swarland, "'Amy, in the beginning, had been too ill to have any say in the matter. "'She had not escaped an attack of brain fever. "'Can I spare the time?' Jeremy Dand was saying, "'in dreary mimicry of the nurse's phrase. "'I can hardly spare the time for anything else. "'That's the worst of it.' "'Oh,' said Amy, "'and is your poor business suffering?' "'Not really,' he replied. "'I am there all day. "'At least my body is, and my calculating mind.' the rest of me is here with you. By the way, you were asking me about Tom Judd. He is back at his desk again, all right. Tom Judd? I forget. Oh, yes. A spasm of painful recollection passed over her face. Quick, don't let's talk of that. How is Swarland looking? All right. Beautiful autumn tints. Don't look so wistful, Amy. One would think that Swarland was paradise.' It is more like purgatory to me. I don't care about going back every night. I have taken a bed at the Central. I prefer to sleep in the same town with you. Amy did not question this sentiment. She seemed to have no impulses of coquetry left. Yes, of course, I understand, she replied in a low voice. It must be a sad house just now. I slept neither here nor there last night, he said carelessly. "'I slept in London.' "'Business?' "'The business of choosing your furs.' "'My first furs,' the woman murmured dreamily, deeply impressed, but too enraptured to remember to proffer her thanks. "'Yes, very fine skins. We must think of a way for you to account for them. Sable coat, tie, and muff.' "'Oh, thank you. How much? I know you want to tell me.' "'Yes, for it was a bargain.' Five fifty, oh, Oh, how could you be so kind? Five-fifty! It's a great deal of money! They are better than Edith's. You could get eight hundred for them easy.' "'And hers were the best in the county. Poor Edith! How proud she was of them! Oh, dear, it brings it home to one so, to think that she will never, never wear them any more.' "'Wear them no more?' Dand repeated, looking into her face. They will have to be put aside for Erina, but I believe if Edith had had her choice she would have been buried in them. Dan laughed. Then he continued to peer, with bleared eyes, into the coals. A few seconds elapsed, parcels of momentous time which the cheap clock on the mantelpiece ticked out as it ticked out the hours of medicine. When at last Dan spoke his voice was very soft, the voice of mischief. "'Aren't you getting rather tired of me as sole visitor, Amy? "'Wouldn't you like Mrs. Bowman, or Lady Medrow, "'or both of them, to come over and see you? "'They are quite ready to make the trip. "'They talk of you continually.' "'I had rather not.' "'You relieve me.' "'Why, don't you want them to come?' "'On the whole, no. "'I just gave you the chance.' "'But can't you bring Erin to see me?' "'No, I cannot.' Stony refusal! But may I send a message to Janie Summerbell? A thousand, if you like. Amy gave a purely domestic message. He listened to it with punctilious attention. Then she laid her hand on his arm. You have not put the child into mourning, have you? I do think it is so unnecessary, and as a matter of fact, I don't believe that children nowadays mourn even for a mother. Arina wears white, said Jeremy Dand. I am so glad. You agree with me. Do you know, I can't help wondering how the old ladies will choose their black without me. I should have arranged the whole thing for them in the proper degree as I did last year, when your cousin Greatorex died. This, of course, is blacker black. It will suit Lady Medros' fair hair. She felt that here the word wig would sound crude. She resumed her soft, even speech, and Jeremy Dand, quiet as usual, Watched not her face, but the large volcanic coal "'that spluttered in the heart of the fire. "'As for your mother, it will be no trouble to her, "'for she always does wear black. "'I'm afraid she will want to go in for crepe. "'Nasty, messy stuff. "'Oh, why do I talk to you of clothes? "'Will you read me some poetry now?' "'He read Shelley's Ode to Hellas. "'Poor Amy, pretending to care for poetry.' I have never thought of poetry before, she said, except as a mine of quotations to floor people with. I suppose that was unfair, like picking the plums off the top of a cake. But just as the plums in a cake sink to the bottom, the best thoughts in poetry lie deep and not so ready to your hand. Amy, you are a superficial little monster, but I love you. Your tired smile, as I make that statement, seems to say that it doesn't matter, that you think my offers of devotion mere extravagance. You look on it as a piece of sentimental rhetoric, sort of useless determination of affection in your direction. "'Well,' began Amy, "'if you knew how unimportant it all seems to me now, our earthly loves and hates, not that I believe much in any heavenly ones,' I never was religious, but now I must tell you, I am done with a righteous providence, disgusted with a jealous God. A crowned caprice is God of the world, on his stony breast are his white wings furled. No ear to listen, no eye to see, no heart to feel for a man hath he. He allows death, and death takes the sting out of mere tragedies of the heart. I think that picture of Watts, the towering figure of death and the little twopenny halfpenny love he is frightening into a corner expresses what I think of it all now, whether you loved me or Edith or both of us was a puzzle once when we had time and leisure for it. But now that Edith has been taken out of the problem by force majeure, it has broken its back, and there seems no need to bother. No need to bother, said he quietly since Edith has gone out of the problem. Very well, so be it. Leave her out. So it is just you and I. We can settle things for ourselves. I mean to make you forget. I mean to make you happy. Don't think of her. Yes, I do think of her, said Amy wilfully. I think of her kindly, almost lovingly. At first she was so mixed up with all that, you know, that I was afraid to think of her, I could only see her dead not maimed the doctor said when did you see the doctor just before you came out of the cottage it was he who told me that there was no hope that she would never regain consciousness good for her i don't know about that it is never nice to die so it was the doctor who put the idea into your head not i yes he said no pain so you see I am able to think of her nice and white and pretty as usual. I don't feel any remorse. Why should we, either of us? he asked brusquely. I needn't anyhow. You have taken the whole thing out of my hands. You have a way of doing that. You are determined always to be the mistress of your fate, and a jolly bad thing you make of it. I meant remorse at having behaved badly to her. Now that she is gone you can't think how happy I am to think that, "'That you never let me kiss you? "'That you never even provoked me to offer to kiss you? "'It was the triumph of mind over matter. "'But, mind you, it took a very inhuman kind of woman to do it. "'You are.' "'Will you kiss me now?' said she gently. "'That makes you mine,' said he, as he resumed his seat. "'Does it?' Amy's kissed mouth smiled. "'Yes. The rest is all behind us.' Leave it there. But tell me, why did you suddenly say that I might? Because you spoke bitterly, and I felt that I could so easily kill that bitterness. Bitterness should always be killed. It's so antisocial. And is that all? Don't you love me? Yes, I suppose I do, under that awful canopy of disaster that hangs over us all. I seem now to see a sort of judgment seat before which we all squat and cower the altar of the crowned caprice yes and it may if it chooses doom us at any minute to be the one to suffer so what does it all matter in the clash of gentler souls and rougher amy suppose i take you at your word shall i may i assume that our relations may take their natural course not necessarily an irretrievable one that depends so much on mood. But say we can go the way our emotions take us, whatever it is. That absurd unnatural position of ours at Swarland, how I chafed at it. I don't think you chafed any more than I did. It isn't in you to care very much about what you can't get. We were both very happy, confess. Well, I was happy. We may be just as happy again when I can forget all this. And anyway, things are a little different now. We are both free." We need not use our liberty, but—' She raised herself a little and looked into his eyes. "'Dear, we have neither of us what people call honest eyes, so it is no good. I won't look into yours for an answer to my question, but I will ask you to tell me this. I am to understand, am I not, that we are going to live together for the rest of our lives?' "'Yes, Amy.' He kissed her again. "'Say now that you are glad that we are going to be together.' yes quite glad it means that you love me i suppose it does mean that i don't know wait till i am better and i shall be lucid and sensible i am only half a woman now i simply can't think of you except as something kind and strong so unlike me i am changed you were potentially attractive to me now you are absolutely enduringly so you have only one fault amy you do not have not set enough store by yourself, and the gifts that you can give. Your deprecatory attitude towards life has been the ruin of you.' "'But who said I was ruined?' she exclaimed lightly. "'Now tell me, when may I come home?' "'Not yet.' "'They all, the doctor and the nurse, think I am well enough to move now. I should get better at home much sooner. I can tell that myself.' "'I don't want you to go back there yet.' "'It is no use asking you for a reason?' "'No, none, sensible woman. "'I am not to be disappointed in you, "'at the very first go-off, I see. "'But of course you cannot stay here. "'You must go somewhere for an after-cure. "'It ought to be by the sea. "'I can't take you there myself.' "'Why not?' she asked, "'with some of the pettishness of an invalid. "'He looked at her gravely. "'Well, for one reason, "'that I am a busy man and cannot leave my work. "'But what about Blois?' "'You have never seen Blois, have you?' "'No. "'I know a good lodgings at Blois, in North Street, "'quiet and clean and sweet, "'opposite the cathedral, with a fine view. "'I could plant you there for a short while, "'but even with a view you would be lonely enough through the week. "'Do you mean you would come and stay with me from Saturdays to Mondays?' "'I could, of course. "'That is why I mention Blois. "'But it would hardly do. "'Are you meaning from my point of view?' from no one else's. You forget that I have never been accustomed to be chaperoned. I have never had time or money. When I was with Sir Mervyn... Oh, don't look at me like that. I can't bear that look in your eyes. Horrid man's look, I know. You shan't be tormented with it. Go on. Well, when I lived with Sir Mervyn Diamond once, for three whole months in London, what chaperone had I? Nobody but your Mr. Johnson. Did you know that?' "'Yes, you dear innocent adventuress, I did know it. "'It all comes in. "'It's part of the horrid web of things. "'But no one ever thought of saying it was improper. "'There was no one to say so. "'No one ever saw you there, I suppose. "'Diamond was not much sought after at the time, if I remember. "'But if they had seen me, "'nobody would have stirred a step to the rescue. "'Why should they? "'I was above the laws of chaperonage, or below them.' I was a working woman, not a society girl, living in an artificial state of care and wardship. The sort like me, the greater number, that can't afford to be kept in a greenhouse, who thinks of them and what they do, till they are fished out of the river, or come tottering, two of them, out of the workhouse. Do you think that people trouble to chaperone their pretty servants that they leave there all summer, in an empty house, alone with a troop of painters and paperers? No. They are not in society. It is no matter for them. They must just keep a good lookout. And did you keep a good lookout? He whispered. She went on, unheeding. Sir Mervyn was the only man who realized it. He offered to marry me. Then he was not such a villain as I thought. Nor a villain at all. Just a man of the world, of Lady Meadrow's horrid, indecent world you ought not to bring my mother-in-law in dear amy respect for gray hairs i know i am sorry i have no manners how can you marry me well will you go to blois i'll speak to the doctor and the matron of this it sounds very nice if i really may not go home not at present but i will come over and stay at blois sometimes with you if you will let me but dear reckless amy Are not you afraid that I shall want to be your lover? I don't see why you should, she replied indifferently. After all those calm years at Swarland... She was getting tired. She wanted him to go. Looking pensively down at the lace sleeves of her peignoir, she remarked with weakly enthusiasm, I do like those little frills. The man, adrift on a theory of her past, which she unconsciously fostered, was rebutted by the simplicity of the woman who had been through Sir Mervyn Diamond's hands. He concluded her to be a nature, on whom the effect of one of the greater eventualities of a woman's existence is inoperative, through some accident of temperament, or mere absence of morbidity. Anemic women are apt to be superficial. Amy was clever, but inartistic, pathetic, but not passionate." Like some little city plant, she had sucked her nourishment from a used-up soil, full of strange surprises, thin but interesting and various. The springs of her emotions, such as they were, had never been tapped. The careless surface explorer had reaped no wonderful psychological harvest. It had been left for him, who loved her. End of chapter 30. Read by Lisa Reichert.